Welcome to this Uvula Audio bookcast of Smuggler's Reef by John Blaine. Volume 7 Chapter 15 Plimsoll Marks Duke Barrows, editor of the Whiteside Morning Record, sips slowly at his cup of coffee, nodding encouragement at Rick every once in a while. The editor, after a few words with Jerry, had taken Captain Killian to his own house for safekeeping. The captain could stay there, Duke said, until it was time for him to make a public appearance. But the price Duke asked was to be told the complete story. At first, Rick hesitated. With no proof of anything except for Captain Killian's testimony, which actually convicted no one, he was a little doubtful about making accusations. But when it came to keeping a tight lip, the editor was probably more experienced than any of them. Besides, Rick hoped he might have a suggestion. So finally, they put Captain Mike on the Seaford bus, and the three young men and Duke retired to a secluded booth in the rear of a restaurant to talk it over. Morrow's traced circles on the plastic tabletop for long moments after Rick had finished. You've been pretty thorough, he said finally. What do you plan to try now? Rick shook his head. Wish I knew. We could try to get to Creek House earlier next time the Albatross puts in there, but we know now that they guard the place. How about spotting the Albatross from the air while she actually loads at sea? Rick mentioned that, Scotty replied. But how? We can't fly at night in the Cub because we don't have landing lights, and if we did, we could only go out in moonlight because we don't have any night-flying instruments. Jerry looked at the editor. Duke, you know the Coast Guard commanding officer in this area. How about getting him to send out one of his planes? Well, we could, Duke said slowly. But I'd rather not. This is Rick and Scotty's case. He grinned. Besides, I'm selfish. If the Coast Guard gets it, every news agency and paper in the country is going to get it from official sources. I'd rather have an exclusive we can copyright. Then every paper in the country will have to quote us. It would put Whiteside on the map, Rick grinned. Seriously, Duke, I'm afraid that's not very practical. Besides, how do we know when the Albatross was going to make contact with a supply ship? We know when he's going to Creek House because Captain Mike can see him, but Brad has already made contact when that happens. Let's take one thing at a time. The editor drew pencil and paper from his pocket. What would you need to fly at night? Rick ticked them off on his fingers. Wing landing lights, navigation lights, cockpit instrument lights, and if we were supposed to find anything but clear weather, we'd need a bank and turn indicator and an artificial horizon. But even then I'd be doubtful. I've never had training on that stuff. I wouldn't dare take the cub out unless it's a clear moonlit night, 
So I'd have to have a good horizon. Scotty approved. That makes sense. If we stuck to clear moonlight, the only things we'd need would be landing lights and navigation lights. Duke made notes. All right. I don't think you need to worry much about having good moonlight because the weather is pretty consistent this time of year. Barring a ground haze or local thunderstorm, you'll have clear weather, and the moon will be full by the early part of next week. Now suppose we get Gus to install landing lights and navigation lights on a rental basis. The paper would pay for that in exchange for an exclusive story. All right, then all we would need would be good weather, Rick said. He had never flown the Cub at night. In fact, he had only flown once at night, and then it had been in a much better plane and with an experienced instructor. But with good moonlight and a clear sky, it shouldn't be much different from day flying, Duke continued. Now the next point. How can we know when the Albatross is going to make contact? I think we can find out if Captain Mike will help, Scotty answered. We know it takes time to transfer the smuggled goods, whatever they are. That means Brad Marbeck has to leave port earlier in the morning than usual, unless he wants to call attention to what he's doing. As I see it, he probably leaves pretty early, makes contact with his supply ship, gets his load, then he hurries to the fishing grounds and gets his net over the side, and is fishing when daylight comes and the others see him. If Captain Mike kept watch, he could let us know when Brad left real early. That's good figuring, Rick complimented his pal. The albatross would have to leave between half past two and three in the morning. Otherwise, he wouldn't have time to load before daybreak. It wouldn't take long, Scotty pointed out. They have to do their unloading by hand at Creek House. But the ship must have cargo booms. Two cargo nets swung to the deck would do it, and it wouldn't take any time at all. Jerry consulted his watch. We could go to sea for tonight and make arrangements. Rick shook his head. It's Saturday. The fleet doesn't go out on Sunday. Monday will be the soonest. I have another idea, Duke Barrow said. Suppose we take the state police into our confidence. But we don't have any evidence to give them, Jerry objected. No need. Captain Ned Douglas is a good friend of mine. I could put it to him as a friend and not officially. Rick rather liked the idea of having the state police on their side. He had a great deal of respect for the young officers, and he knew that they operated with military efficiency, plus FBI criminology training. What's more, Captain Douglas was a good friend of Hart's and Brant's, and Rick knew he would treat their story with confidence. I'm for it, he said finally. Besides, if the state police sort of cooperated unofficially, they could have their highway patrols watch out for the truck that's getting the stuff from Creek House. The patrol car wouldn't even have to go to Seaford. They could just keep an eye on Salt Creek Bridge, because that's got to be the loading point. Captain Mike hasn't seen any trucks on Million Dollar Row. Fine, Duke Barrows rose. Still early. We'll get busy right away. First stop, Whiteside Airport, to talk with Gus about putting lights on your plane. Then we'll drop in on Captain Douglas. Rick felt better. The pattern was clear now, even though there were a lot of ifs. If Captain Mike notified them, he and Scotty could fly over the Albatross. If they saw it make contact with some offshore ship and load contraband, they could return to Spindrift and notify Captain Douglas. Then the state police could be on hand at Creek House to catch the Kelsos and Marbeck in the act of unloading. 
and that would settle the smuggler's hash once and for all. The prospect of flying at night made him a little nervous, but he was sure it would be all right. The only thing was, although he could take off from Spindrift at night, he couldn't land there because the tiny strip gave no room for errors in judgment. He would have to land at Whiteside. This is on the morning record, Duke said as he paid the check. And while we're working on this, I think I'll try to dig into Kelso's record a little too. Never know what it might turn up. Sunday was quiet at Spindrift. Rick and Scotty swam in the light surf below Pirate's Field, sunbathed for a while, and then walked back to the house. Hartson Brant was loafing for the day, too, and Rick had an opportunity to talk to him for the first time in several days. Hartson Brant listened to Rick's story and plans and agreed that any night flying must be done in absolutely clear, bright weather. Rick knew that the fact that Captain Douglas was cooperating had swung his father's decision, and he knew that although his mother would be inclined to object, she would accept his father's judgment. It gave Rick a comfortable feeling to know that the state police captain was interested. Captain Douglas had agreed to go along with their plans during a long conference the night before, and Gus had promised to get the necessary lights for the Cub from Newark early Monday morning and have them installed by Monday evening. Rick and Scotty helped with the installation on Monday afternoon. The hardest part was feeding the wires through the wigs and fuselage. The wires had to be passed from one inspection port to the next, which required a great deal of fishing. But by five in the afternoon, the job was done. The cob now carried a pair of landing lights, like auto headlights, one under each wing, and red and green navigation lights on the wings. There was a tiny white light on the tail, too, which would blink in unison with the colored wing lights. As they landed at Spindrift, Rick grinned at Scotty. Your head set firmly on your neck? It might get jarred off the first time I try a night landing. I should have stayed in the Marine Corps and lived a quiet, safe life, Scotty grumbled. When do we try these things out? Want to go down and shine the lights on Creek House? Rick joked. No, that wouldn't be safe. Didn't that phone call warn you not to fly over Seaford? The phrase hit home, and Rick yelled. That's it! Scotty! I knew there was something funny. It was in the back of my head, and I couldn't dig it out, but that is it. Listen, why would the Kelsos object to our flying over Seaford during the day? All their dirty work goes on under the cover of darkness. They must have some reason for warning us. Yeah, you're right. Scotty started at a run through the orchard. Let's take another look at those photographs. They ran through the house and up the stairs to Rick's room and spread out on a table the enlargement Scotty had made. Let's see. There must be something they don't want us to see. But where? We know there's nothing on the grounds, and we couldn't see anything in the house or the garage from the air. The marsh, Scotty suggested. Try the marsh, especially up the creek from the hotel. They bent their heads over the best photo of the area, and two pairs of eyes scanned the marsh grass. Rick pointed to an area on the creek house side of the marsh, a short distance below the bridge. There's something there, but I can't make it out. Scotty straightened up. You got a magnifying glass? There's one in the library. Rick ran to get it and stopped to explain to his father that they might have an important clue, and he ran back upstairs. 
It was a powerful glass. He held it over the questionable area, and the details leapt out to meet him. Wordlessly, he handed the glass to Scotty. The boy bent and studied the photo. Then he turned to Rick with a wide grin on his face. So that's it. Rick, that's their cash. They must park the stuff there until the truck comes. The marsh grass had been bent cunningly over the area in an effort at camouflage, but the magnifying glass clearly showed some sort of barge piled with wooden boxes. Well, let's go take a look, Scotty said enthusiastically. Maybe it's still there. Rick started to agree, and then a thought struck him. No, we'd better not. They'll see us, and they might notice the lights on the plane. We don't want to tip our hand. Then he brightened. But they don't know Gus's plane. He hurried out into the hall and called Whiteside Airport, and Gus answered. This is Rick, he told the airport manager. Gus, how's your plane? Running like a watch, just like my car. Why? How about we borrow it for a quick trip south? And now he wants to imitate birds, Gus groaned. Don't you know it's too early to fly south? We don't want to go that far south, Rick said. Sure, come and get it. Rick had no hesitation in asking the obliging Gus for the loan of equipment, because he was always ready to oblige in turn. Several times, when Gus's plane was out of commission or not available, either because of an engine overhaul or because some flyer had rented it, Rick had taken the cub to Whiteside for Gus to use in instructing his pupils. Furthermore, the island boats were always at Gus's disposal, and he frequently borrowed one to go on a Sunday fishing excursion. The short hop to Whiteside took only a few minutes. Rick taxied to the hangar, and he and Scotty climbed out. Gus's plane, a light private job of a different make than Rick's, and painted red, was standing on the apron. It had the name of the airport painted on the side in large letters. Gus came out of the office and walked to meet them. He was a short, stocky young man, only a few years older than Rick, and a slightly sour look hit a keen sense of humor. I called my lawyer. He'll be right here, he announced. Lawyer? Rick sometimes had a hard time knowing when Gus was pulling his leg. What for? Gus shrugged. You're borrowing my plane when your own is in perfect flying condition. It's got to be for something illegal. You want my plane to be seen instead of yours. You want people to think I did it. So I asked my lawyer to come over here. I'll have a witness to prove I wasn't in the plane when the dastardly deed was done. What deed? Scotty asked seriously. Gus looked wise. You don't trap me like that. If I admitted what I know, that would make me an accessory before the fact. Nope, I'm keeping quiet about this, he leered. But I know. Accessory, Rick hooted. You know what that means? Something extra and usually unnecessary. Gus looked hurt. I'll remember that the next time you come in for an engine check, and I'll put Emery in your crankcase. Go on, get in. I'll whirl the fan for you. Rick and Scotty climbed into Gus's plane, grinning. Rick checked the controls rapidly and then called, Ignition off! Off, Gus repeated and pulled the propeller through to prime the engine. Contact, Rick called, and Gus pulled the prop. The engine caught at once. Rick warmed it and watched his gauges and then waved to Gus and taxied to the end of the runway. 
As soon as they were airborne, Scotty took the speed graphic he had brought and checked to see that a film plaque was in place. Rick banked around and headed for Seaford. There was no buzzing of Creek House this time. Rick flew a straight line just far enough seaward so that Scotty could get a good picture. As they passed the cache area, Scotty leaned far out and snapped the shutter. Then he turned to Rick, grinning. Still there, about ten cases. Looks as if we've got the goods on them. Rick flew straight ahead until he was out of sight of Seaford. Then he swung a few miles inland and returned to Whiteside. Fifty minutes later, they were landing the Cub at Spindrift, just in time for dinner. But first, Rick made a phone call to the morning record, reported their findings to Duke, and arranged with Jerry to pick them up at the Whiteside dock later for a trip to Seaford. They had to see Captain Mike to make arrangements, and Rick wanted another look at the albatross. He had to memorize every detail of its silhouette, otherwise he might find himself following the wrong ship when the time came if another fisherman decided to get an early start. It was dusk when Jerry met them. I got a message from Duke, he said as he climbed into the car. He phoned Captain Douglas to tell him about the wooden cases you saw. Captain's going to keep an eye on the stuff, but he says it isn't enough evidence. The Kelsos could claim they know nothing about it, and we couldn't prove they did. The stuff isn't on their land. Proof, Scotty said sourly. Golly, we got to get pictures of that peddling of the stuff to customers? Just about, Rick commented. Captain Mike wasn't at home when the young men arrived. They parked in front of his shack and talked and listened to the car radio for over an hour before he finally appeared, and then he greeted them tartly. Why weren't you at Spindrift when I phoned? What for? Rick asked. What happened? Brad Marbeck's at Creek House again, and that's what happened. I called to tell you and your mother said you had left. What's the matter? Not letting what happened the other night scare you off, are ya? We sure are, Scotty replied. Rick laughed at the old seaman's astonished expression. Don't let him fool you, Captain. We've got another plan. Quickly he outlined Duke's proposal and explained how they had outfitted the cub. Captain Mike smacked his thigh. Now we're getting down to cases. You just bet I'll keep watch on the pier so I can phone when Brad leaves. There's one more thing, Captain Mike, Rick said. I have to get another look at the albatross tonight. Is there any place from which we can see her without being seen? Captain Mike thought it over. Yes, he said at last. There is. There's a dredger tied up at the pier just south of the fish wharf. And Brad always burts in the same place on the south side. I know the skipper of the dredger. We can sort of drop in on him and take a look from there. Does that suit you? That'll be fine, Rick replied. But we may have a long wait if Brad's at Creek House. Wouldn't be surprised, Captain Mike nodded. Likely two hours. What say you come into my shack? Might be able to scare up a sandwich or two to pass away the time. Rick looked at Jerry doubtfully. There's a paper out due tomorrow morning. Don't you have to get back and help get it out? Not tonight, Jerry grinned his pleasure. Duke said to stick with you two and forget everything else. First time I've had an assignment like this. I have to admit I sort of like it. Good, Captain Mike grunted. Then let's go see what we can find to eat. I got so interested in watching for Brad Marbeck. 
I plumb forgot about food. It was after eleven when the four left the shack and climbed into Jerry's car for the short ride to the pier. At Scotty's suggestion, they parked the car on the edge of town and walked to the dock where the dredger was tied up. They stayed in the shadows, hopeful that they would not be seen, and Rick thought they reached the dredge without attracting attention. The dredge was deserted, but Captain Mike made himself at home. He led the boys into the wheelhouse, a small shack on the aft end, and they took places at the windows. They had arrived too early as it developed. It was a full half hour before the albatross finally rounded the fish pier and steamed into her berth. The pier workers were gathered at the berth, obviously waiting impatiently. They had finished unloading the last of the other trawlers a full fifteen minutes before. Rick studied the rigging of the ship as it approached and memorized the position of her running lights. The albatross had only one distinctive feature. Her crow's nest, from which a lookout was kept for schools of fish, was basket-shaped instead of being perfectly round. The other trawlers he had noted had crow's nests that looked like barrels. He knew he wouldn't forget the way the nest narrowed toward the bottom. The albatross was low in the water. As she slid into position and threw out her lines, he saw clearly the plimsoll marks on her bow. The plimsoll mark was a series of measurements in feet, running from the maximum depth at which the ship should lie in the water down toward the keel. By looking at it, the skipper could tell at once how much load he had aboard. Now the top figure was barely showing. Rick studied it and his forehead creased. That's funny, he said, pointing it out to the others. She's full up. You think she'd be lighter after dropping off a loaded creek house? You would, for a fact, Captain Mike muttered. What do you suppose they're smuggling? Must be feathers, because if you added a few more pounds to the load she's carrying now, she'd be awash. Rick felt a pang of doubt. Were they away off the beam on their guesses about the Kelsos and the Albatross? The ship certainly would be higher in the water had they unloaded cargo. Maybe they didn't unload tonight, Scotty ventured. Be smart of Captain Marbeck to just visit Creek House for nothing once in a while to throw off any watchers. That way, he can make his story about visiting his relatives seem even more plausible. Captain Mike had told them that was the story Brad was handing out to those who dared question him about his visits to Creek House. Rick's face cleared. Okay, well, I guess that's got to be it. But look, if he visited the Kelsos tonight, it doesn't look as though he would make contact with his supply ship for a couple of days. Suits me, Scotty stated. I'm not overly anxious to go tooting off into the wild black yonder in that cub, if you come right down to it. I'd rather Brad took his time to let me get used to the idea. He had stated so neatly what Rick was feeling that he had to grin. He had been wishing he had more confidence in his ability to land safely at night. Amen, he said fervently. Chapter 16 Night Flight it seemed to Rick that his head had scarcely touched the pillow when the ringing of the phone penetrated his slumber. The luminous dial of his watch showed a quarter past three. For an instant he shivered. The ringing could only mean one thing. He heard the creaking of the bedspring 
and the soft pat of Scotty's bare feet as his pail swung to the floor. Scotty had the faculty of waking up instantly and moving into action. By the time Rick reached the hall, he was already lifting the phone from his cradle. Yeah, he said softly. Okay, Captain Mike, how long do you think it will take him to get out past the fishing grounds? All right, give us a call about breakfast time. We'll let you know how we made out. The boys hurried to Rick's room. Rick snapped on the light and stood blinking in the sudden glare. What'd he say? Brad just left. He was phoning from Jake's grill. I guess that's the only place in Seaford that's open all night. Well, my guess that he wouldn't go out tonight was certainly a bum, Rick said. Smuggling business must be good. How long do you figure it would take Brad to reach the other side of the fishing grounds? About an hour. Rick looked at his watch again. That doesn't give him much time before daybreak. It starts to get light at about half past four at this time of year. Well, let's get dressed. Rick slipped into slacks and a heavy woolen shirt because it would be cold before dawn. Then he put on woolen socks and moccasins. He was getting his motion picture camera from the closet when Scotty came in fully dressed. Rick tucked an extra reel of infrared film into his shirt pocket and grinned at his pal. How's your nerve? Mine doesn't matter, Scotty returned cheerfully. How's yours? That's what counts. Well, no soon. Rick paused as his mother called softly. Yes, Mom. He walked to the door of his parents' bedroom. Rick, be very careful, his mother cautioned. And Hearts and Brad added, Don't forget distances look different at night, son, even with landing lights. I'll be careful. We'll be back in a little while. He motioned to Scotty and then snapped out the lights and went down the stairs. He left the camera on the porch, and they walked to the boat landing, hiking briskly because it was chilly. Their plan was to take both boats to the Whiteside Landing, leave one of them there to provide a means for getting back to the island after they had landed at the airport. Probably it would be more sensible to have left the plane at the airport, too, but that meant a walk from the boat landing, and Rick hadn't been sure how much time they would have. In a short while, they were back at Spindrift. They picked up the camera and walked past the orchard to where the cub was parked, looking a little unfamiliar with the landing light shining in the moonlight. Rick stopped for another look at the sky. He had studied it periodically from the moment they left the house. There was a little fair-weather cumulus cloud scattered here and there, but nothing that would interfere with visibility. There was a good moon, two-and-a-half and, and three-quarters full. Rick would have preferred the brightest of full moons, but he philosophized that he shouldn't expect maximum conditions. A glance at his watch showed that slightly less than a half hour had elapsed since the phone call. It would be another half hour before Brad reached the probable contact point beyond the fishing grounds, and it would take the cub only about twelve minutes to reach there. There was no use in starting just yet. He sat down on the grass under the wing of the cub and hurriedly stood up again. The dew had already fallen, and the grass was wet. Scotty chuckled. Something bite you? I thought we could sit it out for a little while, Rick explained, but it's too wet. He knew he couldn't sit still. He wanted to get into the air and to get the feel of things. Crank her up, he requested. He slid into the pilot seat and placed the camera beside him. 
Scotty walked around to the front of the plane and started the engine. Then, as Rick warmed it, he untied the tie ropes and removed the wheel chocks and got in. Relax, he advised. I'm trying to, Rick returned. Buckle in. Here we go. He fastened his seatbelt, and Scotty did likewise. The grass landing strip stretched ahead for a distance that seemed much shorter in the moonlight. Rick glued his eyes to the point where it ended and pushed forward on the throttle. He wouldn't need lights for takeoff. The plane shuddered, and he released the brakes. The tail came up, and the cub rolled, picking up speed rapidly, and then lifted smoothly from the grass. They were airborne. The horizon was clearly defined, and Rick breathed a sigh of relief. No trouble in flying level. Their only bad moment would come during landing. He climbed to a thousand feet, and then set a course for Whiteside. He wanted to get a look at the airport approaches by night. In a short space, he saw the field beacon and their red boundary lights. He throttled back and let the nose drop, crossing the field at less than 200 feet. Looked easy. The tension left him, and he flew easily, automatically. He'd been flying the cub for so long it behaved like part of him, without conscious effort. He climbed steadily in a shallow turn until his altimeter read 2,000 feet, and he was heading out to sea. Far below Spindrift Island was a dark extension of the land, almost completely framed by silvery moonlit water. Pretty, Scotty said. Rick nodded. He knew his mother and father were listening to the plane's drone down there. They wouldn't sleep until he got back. They had spent ten minutes making the long sweep over Whiteside. Rick glanced at his watch and then banked around on the predetermined course. He put the cub in on a slow climb. We'll arrive a little north of the grounds, he said. Watch for ship lights. We may see the supply ship before we see Brad Marbeck. Maybe they already met. Scotty remarked. Rick shook his head. They can't have met yet. Brad would have to go pretty far out. Otherwise, the trawlers going to fish would be able to see him and his supply ship on the horizon. Scotty shivered. It's getting cold. They were climbing steadily. The altimeter read slightly less than 4,000 feet. At that height, the men on the ships below wouldn't know what kind of plane was overhead. They flew in silence for several minutes. Then Rick warned, We're getting there. I'm watching. Scotty had taken the binoculars from behind the seat where they had been left. Suddenly he grabbed Rick's arm. There, dead ahead. Rick banked the plane a little so he could see from the side window. Far ahead and below, red lights and white lights twinkled against the sheen of the sea. Some distance separated the lights, and he knew he was seeing both vessels. They had not yet met. His pulse began to pound a little. He pulled back slightly on the control wheel and let the cub climb. We'll continue straight on, he told Scotty. Then we'll turn and come back at a lower altitude. All right. Scotty leaned out into the slipstream and put the binoculars on the lights. When the ships were behind, he pulled his head in again and rubbed his cold face. That other ship is a freighter. Not very big. I'd say less than 4,000 tons. It's probably a coaster. Rick wondered. If it was a coastal vessel, 
Why hadn't he found anything in the New York paper at the morning record? It was probable he decided that the ship was heading for some other port, maybe Boston. Well, that's weird, Scotty said. That other ship is heading south. South? No wonder we couldn't find anything in the shipping news. Listen, Scotty, what if that's just an American coaster? You know what that would mean? That ship would have to rendezvous with some ocean-going freighter, or maybe several of them. His voice hushed. What if we've run into something that's only a small part of a really big smuggling ring? His ready imagination pictured the coastal vessel sailing regularly between Baltimore and Portland, Maine, meeting ocean-going smugglers, in turn supplying small contraband runners like Brad Marbeck and the Kelsos all the way up and down the coast. I expected some big ocean freighter, Scotty remarked. They'd been flying steadily out to sea. Now Rick banked around so Scotty could look through the glasses once more. I can see him on the horizon, Scotty said, glasses to his eyes. They've met. The lights are almost together. Hey, lights just went out. Probably turned out so as not to attract the attention of any passing ships, Rick guessed. They can't see, as we can, that they're the only ships around. We'll stall for a while before going back. Give them time to get rigged for passing cargo. He lifted the camera to his lap and then trimmed the cub so it would fly by itself. Scotty took the power pack on his own lap and checked again to see that the dynamo-driven ring was wound tightly. Rick had connected the infrared attachment so that the switch was handy under his thumb when his left hand held the camera in position. The camera itself, run by its own spring, was operated by the right hand. He pressed the infrared switch and heard the dynamo whine softly. Scotty immediately wound it another half turn to bring the spring up to full tension again. Wish I had enough hours to do the flying for you, he said regretfully. Then you could photograph without worrying about the plane. Scotty had his license, but he had not yet accumulated the experience that would fit him for an adventure like tonight's, or rather this morning's. Rick twisted the lens barrel, making sure it was full open. Then he twisted the focusing ring until it stopped. Now the camera was focused on infinity. All he needed to do was aim and shoot. He looked at Scotty. His friend's face was a white blur in the dimness inside the plane. Think we've given him enough time? I think so. They wouldn't need much. The supply ship would have cargo booms all rigged, and the first load in the cargo net. Better turn back. Rick banked, letting the cub slip as he did so. They lost altitude rapidly, and he watched the silvery sheen of the ocean resolve itself into waves. There was not enough wind to make foam or whitecaps. The two ships would have no trouble coming alongside and moving cargo. He leveled off at 500 feet on a course that would take them directly over the vessels. Both young men strained to see ahead, and both saw the blurred outline on the horizon at the same time. Gradually, the outline became clearer, until finally they flashed directly over the two ships. Here we go, Rick said, and the calmness of his voice surprised him. He rocked the cub up into a tight bank that would take them on a narrow circle with the ships at its center. His hands made delicate adjustments in the plane's balance so it would practically fly itself. His feet were light on the rudder pedals. 
He lifted his hand from the wheel, and the cub held course without a waver. Now, he said. He took the camera and pressed it to his cheek, gripping it firmly. His eye found the telescope, and he pressed the infrared switch. Scotty's hand was poised, ready to grab the control wheel if the plane started to slip. The power pack was held tightly between his knees, and his right hand was on the winding handle. The scene lit up for Rick. He saw four men on the trawler's deck looking up at him. He saw the cargo net suspended almost over their heads, and he saw men on the deck of the freighter. His right index finger pressed when the camera started to roll. The cub held its tight circle, and Rick kept his finger down. Then he felt the camera stop and knew it had to be wound. Swiftly, he shifted balance and turned the winding handle until the spring was at full tension again, but his shifting of weight had disturbed the plane's delicate balance. He had to put the camera down and work the tab controls that trimmed the plane with his left hand while his right kept it steady. It took only a few moments. Meanwhile, Scotty had wound the dynamo tight once again. When Rick looked out, the cargo net was no longer in sight. The men on the freighter's deck were bent over another cargo net, working at cases that were evidently heavy. Rick kept the camera on them, shooting steadily, rewinding when necessary. Then he shifted his view to the trawler. The men were standing over a gaping fish hatch. Evidently, they were stowing the first load while the men on the freighter prepared the second. I have enough, Rick said finally. There was nothing more to be seen unless they wanted to wait for the second load to change ships. How much footage did you get? Scotty asked. About 50 feet, maybe less? Well, that ought to be enough. Let's go home. Rick swung the cub in a circle until they were facing the direction of the mainland, according to compass readings, and then he leveled off. I wonder what they thought about the plane overhead, he said. Probably scared them stiff, Scotty replied. Chances are Brad Marbeck had a good idea who it was. The one thing they had overlooked in their plan was Brad's possible reaction to seeing the plane, Rick realized suddenly. Great grinning goldfish. What if that got them really scared? They might have just defeated their own purpose by making him jettison the contraband. Then he reasoned that Brad wouldn't dump his cargo if he could help it. Anything worth smuggling was too valuable to be dumped just because two kids saw it transferred. But still, if I were Brad, I'd get up a full head of steam for Creek House and unload that stuff right away. How about you? Because you'd be afraid those two wild men in the airplane would report it to the police? Maybe you're right, Rick. We better get Captain Douglas and his men on the job right away. The streetlights of Whiteside were in sight now. Rick took a bearing from them and swung slightly northward to pick up the airport. Then he saw the beacon. He had not bothered to climb after leaving the ships, so he passed over Spindrift at an altitude of 500 feet. He knew his parents would hear the cub and know he had returned this far safely. His palms were moist with perspiration, and he had a swallow to clear his throat. Now that the moment of landing was here, his nervousness was returning. He leaned forward, watching for the airport marker lights, and saw them directly ahead. The airport wasn't big or important enough to rate runway lights or a lit windsock, but those wouldn't have helped much anyway. He knew from watching the sea that the wind was negligible, 
and anywhere he landed on the field would be all right. He throttled down, and the nose automatically dropped to the correct glide position. Then he saw the red marker lights rushing up to meet him. He threw on the landing lights. White swaths of light picked out the trees and the boundary fence. The cub flashed across into the open, dropping steadily. The ground seemed to come up appallingly fast, but Rick kept his nerve. It was only an illusion, he knew. The cub was at the correct approach angle, but the illusion made it hard to tell when to level off. He waited a second too long and his wheels touched and the cub bounced. He threw power into the engine and the little plane lifted into the air again. Tricky, he muttered when Scotty looked at him. You're telling me. Rick went around the airport again and banked around tightly into the approach. His jaw was set firmly and he watched the field so closely that his eyes watered. He'd make it this time. He cut the gun and the nose dropped. He waited as the runway came up, trying to gauge his height by the grass that showed clearly in the landing lights. Slowly, he eased the control wheel back and the plane leveled off. Slowly and more slowly, they were eating up runway rapidly. Scotty shot him an anxious look. Then, with feather lightness, the wheels touched down. The tail settled gracefully and they were on the ground. Rick applied the brakes and the cub slowed to a stop. He wiped his forehead. Scotty leaned over and solemnly shook hands. Rick gave the plane the gun again and taxied rapidly to the hangar, switching on his lights as he went. Babe, we made it, he thought jubilantly. First night flight safely over. And that's not all. We got what we went after. <laughs>